millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. When Diplomacy Fails presents... Britain Goes to War An in-depth examination of the British Empire from the closing stages of the Victorian era to the opening phases of the First World War and beyond. Section 2 Background Part A the Golden Age, Chapter 10 Benjamin Disraeli had done it. He had surpassed the expectations of the electorate, his colleagues, and even his great rival William Gladstone by winning the general election of 1874 and catapulting his Conservative Party back into power as a majority government for the first time in over 30 years. Disraeli was far from the usual suspect one would have expected to lead the Conservatives, He had not endured the normal rituals of his aristocratic peers and colleagues. He had not been born into money, neither had he gone through the Oxbridge educational system. He had not inherited the post from his father. He had worked for every step he had successfully taken up the political staircase by the time he became Prime Minister for the second time. He had endured his share of bitter disappointments, seen Britain's demographic shift and adopted his party's tactics accordingly. He had more recently lost his wife, his greatest supporter, but instead of going off the rails, he stuck to his plan to modernise the Conservatives and take down the Liberal Party. As Gladstone had struggled to reconcile the varied segments of his enormous Liberal Party, Disraeli had recognised the need to emphasise the Conservatives' old values of his own party, as well as downplay the aspects which had made it so unpopular in the reform-centred years of change. By appealing to the worker, promising a strong hand abroad and a return to proper policy and lawmaking at home, Disraeli had been able to take his party out of the doldrums and into the modern age. It was something which his new cabinet were indebted to him for, even if they didn't always agree with him. Disraeli's cabinet was a mixture of old fogies and reconciled idealists, of reserved individuals and one old friend. This latter individual had something of a dynasty behind him, but he also possessed an unusually low level of political ambition and a fierce loyalty to his party's leader. His name was Edward Henry Stanley, the 15th Earl of Derby, son of Edward Smith Stanley, known simply to us as Lord Derby, 
or the guy who led a series of minority conservative governments a few episodes ago. It had been Lord Darby, the younger Earl's father, who Disraeli had faithfully served under while the Peelites had left and the conservative fortunes waned. It had also been Lord Darby who had predicted that he and Disraeli would never hold office again, and had he been alive by 1874, he would surely have marvelled at the fact that his son, now inheriting the title of Lord Darby since his father had passed, was serving as Foreign Secretary under a government led by that same Disraeli. This 15th Earl of Derby actually had enjoyed quite the political career by 1874. He had served already as Foreign Secretary under the chaotic minority Conservative government of 1866-68, and before that he had held various Undersecretary postings for India and Foreign Affairs while his father had been Prime Minister. It was his ability as well as his family connections which ensured he was noticed early. In 1855, Lord Palmerston got wind of Edward Stanley's liberal leanings and offered him a position in his cabinet. The young Edward was said to have been very tempted by the offer, but his father refused to allow it. There was more than a little suspicion that it was his father who controlled the political fortunes of his son, rather than his son making the most out of his own fortunes to develop his own career. As one of the wealthiest landowning families in Britain, the Earls of Derby had incredibly deep pockets even by the standards of the time, and his father made sure that he had the best of everything in his youth, as well as the best opportunities once he grew up. Edward Stanley was no fool blindly accepting his father's money though, he recognised the importance of British foreign policy for the sake of the nation, and had educated himself to its major themes by the time he became Foreign Secretary for the first time in 1866. He was able to enunciate the policy of splendid isolation in that same year, noting that It is the duty of the government of this country, placed as it is with regard to geographical position, to keep itself upon terms of goodwill with all surrounding nations, but not to entangle itself with any single or monopolising alliance with any one of them. Above all, to endeavour not to interfere needlessly with the internal affairs of any foreign country. He was thus the natural choice for Disraeli when forming his cabinet, and the two had been firm friends in their early years, a relationship which was cemented by the turbulent years the Conservatives had endured, and by the extent to which Disraeli had been relied upon during these years by Lord Darby's father. In his book that we'll be drawing on heavily for the next few episodes, John Charmley, noted in Splendid Isolation, Britain and the Balance of Power, 1874-1914, to that, quote, the thirty-year friendship between the flamboyant, extrovert, spendthrift Jew and the quiet, introverted millionaire Englishman was one of the mainstays of the new Conservative government. End quote. The history record as a whole has not been overtly kind to Lord Derby, even though we will come to appreciate how important his influence was on the Cabinet during Disraeli's premiership. To cut a long story short, Darby played a large part in preventing British actions which would have led to a war with Russia in the late 1870s. The problem was, Darby was also subject to vicious attack later on in life, owing to the double team act played by Disraeli, and the other important figure in this triumvirate, Lord Salisbury. Salisbury had left the Conservative Party in an immense huff following the passing of the 1867 Reform Act which Salisbury believed demonstrated that Disraeli had become a slave to the people's whims, and that democracy was being allowed to rule over common sense. 
it took some impressive persuasion to successfully bring Lord Salisbury back into the upper conservative circle by the time Disraeli was forging his cabinet a few years later. How he did so also requires some explanation. Andrew Roberts, in his book, Salisbury, Victorian Titan, noted that as a boy, Robert Arthur Talbot Gascoigne Cecil was horrifically bullied during his school days, an experience which caused him to switch schools a number of times and which forged within him a deep distrust of people and an inherent belief that most were cruel and would exploit the weaknesses of others for their own gain. Thus, he connected these dots with his already reserved stance on the working class and middle class to conclude that democracy should not be extended to the likes of the common man, and that only those of a high moral fibre or a reputable background should be given the vote. These views were so inculcated within him that the 1867 passing of the Reform Act proved far too much for him to bear. He resigned and committed himself to months of Disraeli bashing referring to him as the rootless Jew adventurer, among other unpleasant things. Two important things then happened for Salisbury in 1868. The first was that his father, the second Marquess of Salisbury, died, enabling the then Viscount Cranbourne to become the third Marquess of Salisbury, Lord Salisbury as we know him in the process. The second important thing was really a side effect of his father's death. Because his biological mother had married and died relatively young, in 1847 Salisbury's father had married one Lady Mary Sackville West. By this point, the Lord Salisbury that we know was only seven years younger than his father's new bride. The marriage was a happy one though, despite the fact that Lady Mary's friend, the Queen of the Netherlands, noted somewhat bluntly how she was not really beautiful to the eye with her plain weather-beaten skin and big feet, even though she possessed beautiful eyes, brown and shining, perfect teeth and a very good figure. What Lady Mary's royal friend found most striking about her though was her intelligence, or as she put it, her clear, almost masculine intellect. The influence and importance within high society of Lady Mary, who had multiple connections herself with the Duke of Wellington and Liberal MP John Russell, and the second Marquess of Salisbury, who above all wanted someone to provide him with more sons and look after the sickly ones he already had, meant that regular visitors came to their house slash palace for visits. At some point in the 1850s, our man Lord Darby, as heir to one of the greatest family fortunes in the country, came into regular contact with Lady Mary. Some in the Salisbury clan regarded this development with disgust, and the messages pinged between them were indeed shrouded in a sense of intimacy, but such a thing was not unusual for the time. Whether Darby was merely in the friend zone or not seems to be confirmed by how quickly he married Lady Mary, once the second Marquess of Salisbury our Lord Salisbury's father, passed away, as we mentioned, in 1868. By July 1870, Lady Mary had become the Countess of Derby, and just like that, Lord Derby had married the stepmother of Lord Salisbury. This tangled web of family connections might seem like a somewhat convoluted and even unwise platform to build communications between government ministers on, but it actually worked quite well. When Disraeli, desperate to contact the pariah Lord Salisbury, sought to make a bridge through the wife of his good old friend, the results were surprisingly good. 
Salisbury, who still held something of a soft spot for Lady Mary, was reconciled by way of this strange connection, and thus the conservative triumvirate, of which we'll hear so much about for the next few episodes, was born. When the government began in early 1874, it was Salisbury who was the outcast, and Darby who was pegged to succeed Disraeli, even though he professed the desire to do no such thing. By the time Darby resigned from cabinet in 1878, Salisbury and Disraeli had turned their forces against him, and just like all triumvirates tend to do, they forced one member out until the triumvirate became a duo. Because of this, and because of incriminating rumours, which allude to Darby leaking state secrets to the Russian ambassador in London, who dined regularly with Lady Mary and himself, history has painted Darby as the alcoholic recluse who knowingly jeopardised the interests of his homeland for no good reason, save that he was apparently careless. It is high time pictures of statesmen like these were retouched. Darby was a critical figure during the late 1870s because of the restraint he was able to wield over cabinet, even during times when it seemed as though the whole country, and the Prime Minister, had become infected by the war fever. Disraeli and his cabinet had been massively increased by their victory, but it was perhaps less obvious that the Conservatives had won, as much as it was blindingly obvious that the Liberals had lost. Gladstone had never led a minority government before, and following 1874 he found it desperately hard to rally the disparate parts of his party together. Where once Gladstone had led the front bench and commanded attention, now his party fragmented into different segments of strong opinions which had always threatened to unravel it in the background. Gladstone's difficulty was of course Disraeli's opportunity, because as long as the minority liberals couldn't coordinate attacks or strategy, Disraeli could have his own way with legislations and policy. Gladstone faced revolt from the radicals, who wanted to create their own truly radical party, dedicated to reform of all aspects of British society, and not tied down by the inheritances of old Whig slash Peelite politicians. A more right-wing segment of the party valued ideas of British imperial power in foreign policy, and had criticised Gladstone's willingness to sign treaties rather than expand British power or stand up to the Americans and Germans in the early 1870s. In the centre were liberals who felt a sense of sympathy for both sides, but who normally felt committed to the legacy that the old Whigs and Peelites had left behind. A commitment which brought with it a resilience to change, as well as a willingness to challenge the status quo on numerous instances of equality or corruption where it existed. It was a strange ideology, but it was one which Gladstone himself adhered to. Gladstone never exclaimed his desire to upend the apple cart of British life, but he did want to end the problems that British society faced. He else didn't seek to remove the gentleman from his privileged position, he merely diluted that position by increasing the electorate and removing rotten boroughs. He didn't reason that because of their differences in religion and the difficulties both sides had encountered with their relationship in the past, that Britain and Ireland should split apart. Instead, he adopted a mild version of home rule as his preferred approach to the Irish problems. The trap that Gladstone had fallen into by 1874, and the reason why he found himself stuck rallying hopelessly opposed segments of his one strong party, was that he had reformed too much for the party's far-right elements, but not enough for its leftist radical elements. He was thus stuck in a limbo in which neither the reformers or the liberal conservatives had been appeased, and the ideological support of the -the middle-of-the-road liberals at the centre of the party was not quite strong enough to persuade Gladstone to remain in place. It was as though Gladstone never really picked a side, 
Was he a passionate reformer of the new school, or a slowly lumbering reform sloth like MPs of old? Radicals thought he was the latter, while liberal conservatives, Whigs and Peelites thought he resembled the former. Gladstone, in other words, had been correct. He was woefully incapable of pleasing everyone, and rather than bend or adjust his own convictions to try to redefine the party's base, he elected to break instead. One MP in his own party, William Harcourt, was becoming sick of Gladstone's ways. Having blamed virtually the entirety of liberalism's misfortunes on him, Harcourt noted bitterly to the editor of the Daily News in spring 1874, while the party was amidst a crisis, There is no whip, no office, no nothing. The thing is ridiculous and disgraceful. You will be safe in saying that nothing is decided, nothing arranged, nothing prepared. The fate of the Liberal Party depends on whether Gladstone chooses to get out or sulks. As an example of the kind of maddening morass of debates that the party had resorted to, Harcourt and Gladstone would regularly snipe at each other in Parliament over the question of whether the Anglican Church was becoming too ritualised, the legacy of Gladstone's education bill which had failed the year before. It was as though Gladstone couldn't move on, a suspicion he added to in autumn 1874 when he published his famous assault on papal infallibility called The Vatican Decrees and Their Bearing on Civil Allegiance. It caused dismay among many liberals, radicals and Whigs alike because they were convinced that it could only alienate their Catholic voters. Many more complained loudly that the papacy's earlier assertion of its own infallibility was merely a repetition of what it had been claiming for the past four centuries, and that Gladstone's repeated reactions to it made him appear, well, reactionary, but also distracted from issues which the electorate actually cared for. Rumours abounded that Gladstone had decided as early as 1870 to retire from office and devote his life to theological questions, and now it appeared as though such rumours would come to pass. In early 1875, Gladstone resigned as leader of the Liberals. In the process accepting that, for the foreseeable future at least, political life was no longer a tenable way of life for him. His replacement as leader of the Liberals in the House of Commons was Lord Hartington, a man whose official title changed three times over the course of his life owing to his varied inheritances and dynastic ties. Hartington was born Spencer Compton Cavendish and became Lord Cavendish of Keeley until 1858, whereupon he became the Marquess of Hartington until 1891, whereupon he became the 8th Duke of Devonshire. The fact that his alias changed so often should not obscure the fact that Lord Hartington, which is how we'll be referring to him for the future, was a serious career politician of the old school. His future in politics will be defined by his attempts to lead the Liberals alongside another distinguished statesman, George Gotchen, who was actually the elder brother of Sir Edward Gotchen, the British ambassador who was in Berlin upon the outbreak of the First World War. I'll try my best to not throw any more names at you, but don't worry too much if you can't remember them, since we'll be encountering these folks a lot more in the future. I really enjoy seeing the genesis of people's political careers, especially when you may not be aware of their importance for the future. Like I said, Lord Hartington was mostly tasked with keeping the Liberal Party together between 1875 to 80, but it was what he did after this that really defined his legacy as a tenacious and wily politician. I don't want to spoil the story of what happens with the Liberal Party in the mid-1880s, but suffice to say, once that party splits in half, 
Lord Hartington really comes into his own, since it is he who will lead this rebellious half against Gladstone. Unlike previous episodes, where I have tried to reconcile the domestic policies that governments implemented along with the foreign policies that were followed, in the next few episodes I'm going to ignore foreign policy altogether and just look at domestic developments. No, really, I'm just kidding. I'm going to turn the spotlight away from what the Conservatives did at home in 1875-80 to and focus it instead on what they did abroad. Does that sound better? The 1870s were a very eventful time for Britain abroad, as some of its worst fears seemed to be coming true and serious questions over worst-case scenarios were raised. It perhaps wouldn't have been so intense a time had someone like Gladstone been at the head of Britain, simply because, as we'll see in the future, his idea of what foreign policy should be revolved around policies which were morally beneficial and representative of the kind of Christian evangelism that Britain was supposed to be following, most notably in Africa. Disraeli, on the other hand, viewed foreign policy as a means to get Britain what she wanted, and viewed with cynicism any notions that morality or the right thing would ever be a viable goal to pursue in foreign affairs. The inherent differences between how these two statesmen viewed foreign policy go a long way towards explaining how the British people reacted to them over the next decade. The first half of the decade would see Disraeli's foreign policy of self-interest reign supreme, while the second half would see Gladstone return with a moralising foreign policy that the British people seemed then to be demanding. For us now, though, what Disraeli as Prime Minister means for British foreign policy, even with the moderate voice of Lord Derby as Foreign Secretary, is that London appeared more willing to take risks, and less willing to compromise, especially over the Eastern question. To explain these changes, we have to turn our focus towards diplomacy. Yay, and into a region familiar to you guys if you've listened to When Diplomacy Fails' back catalogue. Just a hint, the Russo-Turkish War of 1877 may take a large chunk of our attention for the next few episodes, but we can't just start with that war. We need to begin with the characters that brought it on and nearly caused Britain to get involved in it. We have to start with Russia and the activities of its statesmen and arms since Germany's emergence in 1871 had upset the balance of power and knocked France out of the equation, emboldening Russian statesmen, striking the fear of the bearer into London, and leading to progressive bouts of Russian expansion since. The majority of Russian expansion occurred with little British reaction to speak of, despite the fears of the Tsar, Alexander II, that such expansion would reawaken the Eastern Question. The Eastern Question was actually a series of questions which surrounded the future of the Ottoman Empire and its hold over the Dardanelles Straits and Constantinople. This hold was viewed by some in London as weak enough for the Turks to be movable should an outside power attempt to take over the good thing that the Turks had going on there. This outside power was of course Russia. It had always been Russia, ever since the British had elected to make the integrity of the Ottoman Empire one of their key aspects of foreign policy in 1808. The Crimean War of the 1850s had come from such a policy, and its legacy was still felt in London as much as St. Petersburg. There was the feeling that Russia would always try to expand there, that she would never be fully satisfied unless she held the Eternal City and brought about the collapse of the Ottomans, and that such events would bring Britain's place within the world crashing down. In a hyper-simplified version of events, British policymakers imagined a world in which Russia dominated the Straits, 
Her ability to affect trade coming in and out through the Black Sea would be impossible to restrict, and her expansion could continue undaunted until she held sway over the Mediterranean as well. This would jeopardise the British interests in the Suez Canal as well as, eventually, India, which Russia's borders have been creeping closer to ever since the end of the Crimean War. 1875 had been a busy year for Disraeli, even before he received word of the atrocities occurring in the Ottomans' East European holdings, which would spark a new shift in Britain's foreign policy in the months to come. The Suez Canal was one of the major theatres which drew his attention that year. By mobilising his contacts within the Rothschild Banking Syndicate, he had been able to gather the capital necessary to purchase the shares that the spendthrift Egyptian Khedive owned. It was a controversial move since the whole thing was arranged by Lord Darby and the Rothschild family, but it proved a boon to British fortunes, and played a huge role in bringing Disraeli even closer to Queen Victoria, who had been greatly impressed by the former's resourcefulness and determination to uphold and ensure British interests. By creating the impression that British influence and money was everywhere, even in what was officially an Ottoman province, Disraeli had given the Russians food for thought, but the struggle for dominance in the Suez region was not settled yet, and wouldn't be, until the British occupation of Egypt in the early 1880s. Another one of Disraeli's acts is perhaps more famous. Although Queen Victoria was regularly referred to as the Empress of India, her official title remained that of a mere queen. To Victoria, this was insufficient when compared to the titles enjoyed by emperors in Russia and Germany and even meant that her daughter would outrank her once she became a German empress. To rectify this, Victoria contacted Disraeli, not the other way round, and asserted her claims and justifications for adding empress to her already long list of titles. Disraeli hesitated, since creating Victoria as an empress would require the passing of legislation, and it wasn't guaranteed that he would enjoy support for the move. After some struggle, he successfully acquired the title of empress for his queen forever placing Victoria in Disraeli's debt and ensuring the continuation of a fruitful and personal relationship between the two towering figures. The fact that Victoria so longed for the title for reasons which, one could justifiably claim, amount to no more than a desire for additional prestige, should demonstrate that she had long since abandoned the ideology which she had once so heartily held in common with Albert. Once Albert had died, historians tend to note a sharp increase in Victoria's desire for British prestige, and less of an interest in domestic reforms at home. She became more interested in daily dispatches from her far-flung dependencies than the state of the poor or how to aid them, a cause which Albert had so passionately advocated. This change in focus may have a lot to do with the sweeping infection of imperialist thinking that had so permeated British policy, but once Victoria had come out of her isolation imposed by mourning, but not her mourning clothes, she was never the same again. The fact that her ideas would now have been more in line with that of Disraeli was convenient for him, but we should remember that the Queen was well able to think for herself, and would attempt to make her presence heavily felt throughout the many phases of what would become the Eastern Crisis. As Russia expanded into Central and Eastern Asia, and as the ideology of Pan-Slavism began to grow and become better known in British circles, calls for London to do something to halt the Russian advance emerged. The plan was to take a page out of the Russians' book and select Afghanistan as the buffer zone where Russian influence would not enter, with calls to clearly demark a red line which the Russians were not allowed to cross. 
Establishing boundaries, some might call them ultimatums, like these, would demonstrate to the Russians that London was well able to defend her interests, no matter how far-flung she happened to be. Disraeli had to contend with the Indian administration, urging a harder stance against the Russians, who were believed to have as a goal expansion in Asia until their borders touched those of another civilised state, such as Britain. St. Petersburg could argue, when it wasn't ignoring British protests, that for the sake of Russian security she had to expand into regions where hostile and uncivilised tribes roamed, and that once she had moved in and brought civilization, Russian governance would ensure the security of both the British and Russian empires. However, sharing a border, especially when it meant that Russia's borders would have the potential to touch that of India, set everyone on edge. Although Central Asia, Afghanistan and the Far East are good examples of the Anglo-Russian rivalry heating up, and themselves form what is called the Great Game of Competition for Dominance there, it was not in Asia but in Europe that Disraeli's government was forced to focus. When we think of great navies in the 19th century, the Ottoman version of navy is not normally near the top of the list. However, owing to an increase in armaments ordered by the new sultan from 1872, the Ottoman Empire came to possess the third largest navy in the world after Britain and France, despite the fact that it really could not afford it. Having only accepted its first foreign loans in the 1850s, the Ottomans rapidly began to swim in a sea of foreign money, which the opulent court did not seem to appreciate and the Ottoman administration could not pay back. Increases in interest and an urgent need to improve infrastructure compelled Constantinople to borrow more, so that its ability to pay off its loans balanced on a knife edge. Amidst droughts and poor harvests, which caused ripple effects throughout the empire, the decision was made to default on a number of their loans. This led to negotiations to restructure the debts with foreign officials, which in turn led the Ottomans to increase taxation all across the empire to pay these loan sharks back. Taxes were increased all across the empire, but by increasing them in the Balkans, the Ottomans made a fatal error. Already for years, the region composed of numerous Ottoman vassal states had been on a downward spiral. Exacerbated by trends in nationalism, perceptions about Ottoman weakness and religious convictions. The addition of taxation far in excess of what citizens were able to pay to a system already plagued by much waste and visible corruption caused outrage among the Balkan vassals. In one of these regions, Herzegovina... Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science, with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. 
But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Now, the outrage bubbled over into outright revolt, sparking a full-blown conflict which the surprised Turk administration seemed powerless to suppress, at least initially. Herzegovina proved to be one in a series of dominoes in the Balkans. As the Ottomans scrambled to contain one revolt, others would erupt in Bosnia, Serbia, Montenegro and Bulgaria. As the Russians seemed to be sizing up the competition and potentially thinking about getting involved, it was soon clear to Disraeli that this would be his first challenge as Prime Minister. But even he could not have known how all-encompassing this Eastern crisis would turn out to be. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.